Dear Father in heaven, we just thank you so much for this beautiful Sabbath day that you have given unto each and every one of us. We just ask and invite your Holy Spirit to be with us as we continue on um, in this day of rest. May our minds um, be reconnected to you. May we contemplate your love and your goodness, and I pray that your Holy Spirit may um, fill us with your joy, uh, fill us with your remembrance, that we may never forget who we are in you. We just ask um, that your spirit may be with each speaker that is a part of the panel. May you place the words within their mouth and make the message plain. For each and every one of us here, help us to be attentive to the message. We thank you so much, Father God, for your love, your mercy, and your grace. And we continue to ask you to lead us from temptation, deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Forever in your precious son's name I pray, amen. Good morning, everyone. All right, so uh, at this time, we're actually going to have the Sabbath School panel discussion. How many of you, be honest, have ever had questions in your life? Yeah, especially in your spiritual journey. Has anyone had questions? Yeah, I know I have. And so at this time, we're actually going to be, we have some friends back here. Um, We're actually going to be answering some questions people have put up on the online website. And so we're going to be answering those at this time. All right, so before we begin, we're going to introduce everyone. Uh, so why don't we start with Professor Godard, I think that's how you pronounce it. And why don't you mention um, your, what you do and also where you're from. I am Kathy Goddard, and I teach English here at uh, Southern and live here in the area. I'm, I'm Chris Anderson, and I'm a pastor of a local church, South Bay Seventh-day Adventist Church. We're located at the end of East Brainerd Road near Brainerd. It's a three-year-old church, so it's a baby. It's brand new. And uh, I live in Harrison. Judy Sloan, and I teach in the School of Physical Education, Health, and Wellness. And I've been here for 18 years. And I love it here, and I love the students. How many of you are 18 here? Ooh, just as long as they're alive, you've been teaching here. Wow. My name is Matthew Bronson. Uh, I'm a graduate from Souls West Bible College in Arizona, and I am studying uh, Near Eastern archaeology here at Southern. My name is Wes Peppers. I live in Michigan, and I work in the ministerial department there for the conference. And I, what was the other question? Where, where are you from? Where are you from? I'm from Michigan. I grew up in Alabama, though, just about an hour and a half south of here, so... Hi, my name is Evelyn, and I graduated from Souls West Bible College in Arizona, and I'm studying nursing here at Southern. All right, and I graduated with these two guys. They're in my class from the Bible College, and I'm studying business pre-med here. So, All right, so at this time, before we begin, can we have another word of prayer uh, just as we dive into these questions, okay? Father in heaven, we pray for your spirits. We just ask that uh, what is shared here, I know that my friends could have uh, questions in their own hearts um, that uh, maybe they haven't had answers to. And I just pray for your spirit that whatever is shared, that your, your word may be uplifted and that we could just share something that will really touch and uh, answer something that's been on someone's heart today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, first question uh, that I have is, How do I find my worth, happiness, security in God? Is it a matter of truly internalizing and being content with his opinion of me above all slash any opinions? 
I'll begin. Okay. <laughs> um, I think we find our worth in God when we stop looking at ourselves. I think that because we're so human, we are very self-absorbed. And, and I think we can find our worth more strongly when we take the focus off of ourselves and put it on Jesus and start studying him and looking at him and understanding him. And I think that's, that's the way to do it. Yes, amen, for sure. Go ahead, uh, Professor. It has taken a while for me to realize one very important fact, and that is I am dirt, literally. Without the breath of God in me, I'm literally a pile of dirt. And it has taken a while for me to understand that I can't look at what other people say or think or treat me to determine my value. My value is because God placed me on this planet Earth right now at this time for a purpose. And not for anybody else's purpose, but for his purpose. Amen. Go ahead, Pastor Chris. Yeah, so my family and I, we lived in Zambia, Africa for a little bit. And I learned there that uh, there wasn't price stickers on everything that you wanted to buy. You had to negotiate. And uh, when you negotiate, if there was something you wanted and they knew it, you would pay a far higher price. So the, the value of an item was determined by what you were willing to pay. And so you would negotiate back and forth. And as I reflect on the value that I have as an individual, uh, I agree with Judy, I'm dirt. But God found something valuable there. He recognized that there's something in humanity that I'm willing to pay a price for. He didn't negotiate. He said, I will pay the highest price in the universe. I'll pay the price of my son. God found value in us so high that it was equal to his son. To me, that gives me great sense of self-worth, that, that God loves me that much. Yeah, and I think uh, one thing, I think our society as well just places on what other people think of us. Uh, but oftentimes, we don't look at what God thinks of us and think about that. Were you going to say something, Matthew? Go ahead. Yeah, I really agree with all the responses that have been shared. Uh, that, was, that was my first thought. You know, we, we need to look to Jesus. Um, this is coming from a melancholy, you know. Um, I, I always had really low self-esteem. And to be 100% honest, you know, I still struggle with, like, those thoughts. And so, so I tried to think, you know, like, that's the truth. We, we need to be looking to Jesus, not to self. How do we do that practically? Um, I think, first of all, we can determine where we are on that scale by, I mean, just, just asking ourselves, you know, who do we really love to think about? Like, who do we love to talk about? Who, who are we spending our time thinking about? Um, maybe there's some other, like, you know, melancholies out there who can, like, resonate with this before going to sleep at night. I would just replay over the day. I'm like, oh, I can't believe you did that. That is so stupid. And, like, this and that. And, and like, you, you can't even sleep. It's so unhealthy in so many different ways. Um, but, you know, you can replace those thoughts. Like, before you go to bed, you can go and think about the day. How did I see God bless me today? How did I see God working in my life? And by replacing those thoughts, I do believe like you can start to see change day by day. Amen. Anyone else before we go? And just, just as a reminder for the speakers, you don't have, feel free if, if you don't feel impressed to share. You don't have to share for every question. So if you feel God impressing you. But Evelyn's going to share something. I just, I'd like to share this verse that I think was mentioned yesterday. It's First Peter, First Peter 2, 9, and it says, But you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, and his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of his darkness into his marvelous light. 
And in turn, this verse is very beautiful because it reminds us that we are a peculiar people. We're called out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's even more beautiful because our self-worth does come from God. And he tells us that he would have come and died for us if we had only been the only person that would have ever sinned. So like um, mentioned here, uh, God sees such a great value in us that he was willing to die, not only just die like for the world, but he's willing to die for each and every one of us. Or he was willing to die for each and every one of us. Amen. All right, so going on to our next question. Um, how do I surrender to God no matter how much I try? I can't seem to give my heart over completely to God. Go ahead. No. You didn't. You didn't. <laughs> you're, a <pastor>. <laughs> <laughs> you're a pastor yourself. So, well. Senior pastor. <laughs> so, uh, this idea of surrender, um, there's an interesting tension within this concept because God will not force us in any level to yield our conscience to him. We have to surrender that to him. And so uh, God respects that, and yet he also wants to work in us to will and to do according to his good pleasure. And so how do we find strength? That's something that we have to find in, in, uh, in this surrender element. Um, and we're given a picture of that in Hebrews 12. I'm just thinking of that. Um, surrender isn't an easy thing. It's not like, oh, I just... I just it's easy to do. No, we have to press into it. It says in Hebrews uh, 12, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such a contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. You have not resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Surrender takes Grit, it takes pressing into, and as we surrender, God empowers that. And in Galatians, we're told that, uh, that as we, uh, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet Christ lives in me. And so this surrender has to have an element of pressing into, as well as an empowerment of Jesus. And uh, just to comment on that, I've been reading this uh, book called Lessons on Faith. How many of you have ever heard that? Lessons on Faith, and so... Uh, one thing as well, even even for those that are, are Christians already, um, I forgot it was A.T. Jones, I think uh, one of the pioneers, he says that oftentimes we start our Christian life surrendering to God, uh, but then we continue on our Christian journey uh, on our own strength. But he says that each step of our lives, we need to be constantly surrendering to him. Anyone? Go ahead. Um, you know, the first thing that came to my mind was uh, Philippians 2, verse 13. You know, God works on us. Uh, the, verse, verse 12, it says uh, to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, like not to do it confidently. Uh, and, then, and then Paul says, why? In verse 13, for it's God who works in you uh, in two ways, both to will and to do. Uh, and I really just actually want to drive this point home just because when I first read it, I, it went over my head. I didn't even really think about it. To will is to want, you know, to do is to do. We know God works in us to do things. Um, but, you know, maybe you don't even want it, but God works in you even to want to do his will, you know. Um, I really just wanted to also just, like, uh, give a little advertisement for one of my favorite books ever written, Steps to Christ, uh, in chapter 5. Um, it actually says, many are inquiring, how am I to make the surrender of myself to God? How am I supposed to do it? You desire to give yourself to him, but you are weak in moral power, in slavery to doubt, and controlled by the habits of your life of sin. Your promises and resolutions are like ropes of sand. 
You cannot control your thoughts, your impulses, your affections. She goes on to say, like, the knowledge of how many times you failed, it makes you think that you, it, it, it lessens your, your confidence that you even can come to God. Um, ultimately, I really want to encourage you to read this chapter, like, uh, go ahead and read it. She talks about the power of choice. God would never make it so that your, your choice uh, is violated. And, and one last thing is that uh, the closer we come to God, the clearer our vision is going to be, you know. Uh, the closer you get to him, the more valuable he's actually going to look, the more you'll actually want to surrender to him. Amen. I think we often look at the wrong actions in our lives and we say, and we try to say, or I think we often think to ourselves, once I get all these things under control, then my life is going to be surrendered to God. So I have to work on these things. And the reality is that the opposite is true, is that the harder you work on those things, the, the more difficult they're going to be. There have been times in my life when I have given counsel to a person or I've, or I've, or I've realized a certain thing that needs to change, and then I just go right out and do that thing myself, if that makes sense. And so the reality is that we... We, we, don't become, we don't necessarily become surrendered when everything in our life is in order. We make the choice to surrender so that God can bring everything in our life in order. Does that make sense? And so the, that choice can be made at any time. And the reason that you have the ability or the opportunity to make that choice is because God has already made a choice for you. He made a choice for you. I, I always used to say that, that um, <laughs> I have to be careful how I say this, that God doesn't do anything contrary to our will or against our will, but, but actually he did. Did you know that? Let me read this to you. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, when you were a sinner and when you were just buried in sin and you were just like, well, let me just keep reading and I'll say this. For scarcely will a righteous man, for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone might even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were the enemies... If when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And so when you were the enemy of God, if you would have, if you would have been asked the question, do you want God to die for you to save you? You would have said, no, not interested. No, thanks. Get out of here. Right. But God said, you know what? Contrary to your desire, I'm going to do this thing anyway for you. I'm going to give you a gift regardless of if you like it or not or if you choose it or not because I care about you and I have an interest in you and I want to do that for you. Now, I just read this last night. This is, comes from um, some notes that Ellen White wrote, but I want you to, this is very powerful. It says, thus it is that Christ's death actually did something for everyone without his or her choice, both temporal and eternal, but the fullness of this great gift will never be fully realized or experienced without a positive, steadfast response. Rather than taking away mankind's choice, 
The cross of Christ is that which gives them a choice. It is the cross of Christ that elicits or draws out a response from everyone. What will you do with the gift that I've given you, says God? It is upon this response, this choice, that everyone's eternal destiny hangs. And so God made a choice when you didn't have a choice so that you could have a choice. And then he says, because of the choice I'm giving you, what are you going to do with it? Amen. All right. Our next question, uh, something I think a lot of college students can relate to, especially uh, leaving home, is how do I find slash choose good and godly friends? Scripture, scripture tells us um, the person who would have friends must show himself friendly. And I think the way that we choose godly friends is, first of all, being godly ourselves. And so if we're wanting godly friends, we need to, do, to develop the, those disciplines of godliness in our own life and uh, allow God to bring people into our lives. Go ahead. My response would be, uh, do you really want them? Because you'll always find what you're looking for. And if you come to Southern looking for godly friends, you'll find them. If you want to come to Southern looking for a party, you'll find it. Uh, just last night, I was trying to go to bed, and I kept hearing these people screaming outside and blowing these air horns. And then I went outside, and I heard this squealing of tires going. Somebody was doing donuts Were somewhere. they opening up the Sabbath or that? Or? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> it was like 11 o'clock at night, and I was like, what are they these were excited. people doing? You know, like, what are they even thinking? And so the reality is, if you really want godly friends, you can find them. It's not that hard. You just go to the right places, and God will lead you in that direction. Yes, exactly. Go ahead. Follow up with that. It is true. If you are looking for a certain group of people, you need to go where you're going to find them. If you're looking for godly people, go to prayer meeting, go to church, go to places where you're going to see them. But not just go there. Get involved. I think too often we've become passive in our, our relationship with God instead of actually being involved. I, I go to a very small church, and we would love to have lots of young people there and be involved. You can talk to me later. <laughs> but, you know, we, we want people to you know, read the lesson, be a, be a Sabbath school teacher for the adults. You're never too young to do that, in my view. And so... Just go where you're going to see those people. If, if I want to find um, party friends that drink alcohol, I'm going to go to a bar. It's not that hard. The same is true if I'm looking for Christ. Go ahead. Ladies first, let's go. Okay. So I just have two practical things. One is if you're trying to find godly friends, first of all, if you're here already at this campus, it's really easy. You can just, like they've been mentioning, get involved or find a life group. Go and look at different groups of people, different programs, Bible studies, and become acquainted with them. And like they said, you will find what you're looking for. And I know that by beholding, we become changed. And so if we really want to be um, more Christ-like and find that good group of people, we need to stick with them and continue to just make, um, just continue to be friends because by the group of friends that we select, we will become more like them. And so that's just one thing, like forming or becoming involved and um, just choosing 
like the right group of friends, just a really quick like testimony of myself. I had a lot of friends growing up in high school, but I never really had like a good, godly, Christ-like friend. And it wasn't until I did this youth rush program that I met this really great friend, and she really helped me. What made her different from all my other good friends was that she directed me to Christ and that we were accountability friends. So if you really want to find those good friends that will help you, that will lead you closer to God, make sure that you both are heading towards the same direction of growing each other, keeping each other accountable to get to know God better. I'll say one more thing. My, yeah. Am I allowed to do that? Yeah, go to, ahead. Okay, just making sure. Uh, my grandpa used to say, son, all through life, you're going to have uh, what you call true friends, and then you're going to have so-called friends. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said the so-called friends are going to come and go, but your true friends are always going to be there. And, and, the, and, and as I've become a Christian, I've reflected more on that. And when I have a true friend, regardless of what my situation is, they're going to tell me the truth, hmm. and they're going to point me to Christ, and they're going to encourage me to do the right thing. They're not going to just sit and tell me what I want to hear all the time, and they're not going to sit and pat me on the back while I take myself down a road to destruction. Hmm. They're going to say, hey, what are you doing? You need to come away from that. Now, it's always helpful to have godly friends, but I want to help us understand that we cannot become dependent upon godly friends. Yeah. You have to have an, an absolute dependence upon Christ alone. When I first became a Seventh-day Adventist, I became a Seventh-day Adventist my senior year in a state university, which is very uncommon. Most young people, by the time they hit senior in a state university, have left Christianity. But I came to Christianity. And the first church that I went to was a church where the, the, I was 22 at that time, the person closest to my age was in their late 50s, not that that's bad, and then it went up to a few people in their 60s, a couple in their 70s, and then 80s and 90s. So I was like the youngest person by like over 30 years. And you know what? I didn't care. I was so happy to have found the truth of Christ, and he was such a close friend to me that not that I didn't want other friends, but I didn't, I, I wasn't dependent upon that. Whether I had them or not, I found the prize and I was joyful. So I'm not saying that to say don't go off and be a monk or a hermit by yourself. It's good to have godly friends, but don't let that, don't let your spiritual experience become dependent upon that. Yes, exactly. I think I saw Pastor Chris. Yeah, I just had a quick comment on this yeah. is uh, I like reading and I was reading about health and exercise. And, and they were giving tips on how to get healthier. And one of the interesting tips that they had was to find friends that are also healthy and exercising. They said the surest way to gain weight is to have friends that weigh more than you. Uh-uh. I thought that was interesting. Uh, so I appreciate the, uh, the comment, this question, is looking to, to make a difference yeah. in their lives through friends. Uh, there is one friend that sticks closer than a brother that we can always know will affect our life in a positive way. Amen. Amen. I think one of the common things that I saw uh, in this is is serve service. Um, I think when you when you serve, I think when you're you're looking for uh, to do the same same thing, you're looking to serve the same God. I think other people you'll look to your left and right and find people that are trying to do the same thing as well. Yeah, I'm sorry. Like this will be short, but 
But we're, we're and, and it's not wrong to do this, we're often looking for godly friends that can be an encouragement mentor to us, and that's good, and we need that at times. But as I begin to grow in Christ, God's going to bring people in my life who need a mentor more than me. Does that make sense? And he's going to allow me to be a mentor and a friend to someone else. And that's where an exponential growth will take place in my spiritual life. So be cognizant of that as well. All right, let's go ahead and move on to another question. How can we as a church come together and finish the work that Christ has given us to do? Yeah, this question uh, is real, really germane currently. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily how, it's we must. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus' prayer was that this church be unified, that the world may know that he was sent from God. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is Christ's prayer. How can Christ's prayer not be fulfilled unless we're resisting it? Um, and so how, the only way is to surrender ourselves to Jesus and say we're going to let him be our captain and our guide and lead this ship. Go ahead, Professor. Holy, Holy Spirit heart work is what we need. Uh, to be surrendering ourselves on a daily basis and giving up our own agendas and our own thoughts. And I think that the way for us to come together is to come to Christ. And I think it's just like the hub of a wheel. Mm. If we're coming to Jesus as the hub, we're going to be coming close to, closer to each other. I think we also need to uh, suspend our judgment, suspend our judgment of other people, suspend our judgment of where we think the church is headed, suspend our judgment so that um, we are not making things happen because we think they're going to happen. Exactly. Amen. All right, go ahead. Again, when I think about how the Seventh-day Adventist Church was formed, it was formed because people came together to study the Word of God for themselves to know what God's desire was for them individually. Mm-hmm. And then that's how they came together corporately. Mm. And I personally feel that there is a lack in, in the organization of people coming together to study the word of God with purpose, with intentionality, so mm. that they can know what God's plan is for them individually as well as corporately. Mm-hmm. God is desiring to pour out his spirit in the latter rain to take the message to the world. Do we desire it as much as he does? Hmm. Go ahead, Matthew. You know, um, I've, I, I, this, is a, this is a thought that's come to my mind. I've actually never even like, shared it before uh, with you guys. How many of you guys have tried literature evangelism before? You know, like Youth Rush, something like that? There's some hands. Uh, we've actually led in Youth Rush programs or literature evangelism programs, and um, first of all, before I say that, uh, if I could just say at the risk of sounding cliche, I believe the answer to the question is uh, we need God's Holy Spirit. You know, like that really is uh, what we need to finish the work. Um, about literature evangelism, there's something I noticed. Um, what you're doing is you're taking young people from a variety of places and you're bringing them together just for the same mission. And uh, we put them out there and they're going into the field. And, and what we do is we go around to each one and we try to help them. We use our experience and we bend every effort and um, when they start to see success, they get excited, and they share it, too. They, like, take the radio, right, and they share it. And when people start to hear it, they start to see it's possible. Something happens throughout the day. It's momentum. Uh, we get momentum going. And when that happens, you can do more than it was possible if you did not have that. Mm-hmm. It's just a thought that I've had. I really believe as we draw uh, closer and closer uh, to the last days, I believe as a church we're going to have momentum. Uh, when we start to see things happen and we start to be encouraged and when we start to share it and when we... 
when we come together, you know, like really committed people, when, when that happens, I really do believe we're going to see momentum and it's going to be really encouraging uh, and the work will be finished. Amen. We, we have a saying that we've begun to adopt in Michigan, and it is that message drives mission. And I think that many people today are losing their fervor for mission that we once had. And I firmly believe that the reason we've lost that fervor for mission is because we've not, we've lost the understanding of the message. And so I appreciate what you said that truly I think the answer is to not just gird up our loins and get out there and give some glow tracks because if unconverted people are doing that, there's no passion to it. But what brings the passion is when we come together, either individually or, or as a group, and we study, begin to study the Word of God, we begin to understand the message, and then as, we, as that message begins to transform us, we begin to develop a passion, or God puts the passion in our hearts to share that with somebody else, you understand? And, and you, it just burns within your hearts. And then people say, well, you know, my personality, I'm just, I'm just introverted and I'm shy. Well, there's different ways to share the message, but whether you're extroverted sanguine or you're introverted melancholy, doesn't matter. You have a burning passion to share that message some way. That's, that's the unifying, or the unifying um, result of studying the Bible. And what you said was also very key because as we study this message individually and then we come together with other people, God will start bringing those people together and you're going to realize that, hey, this person studied the same thing and that person studied, and we're all studying the same thing. It's a powerful thing. And then the desire and the zeal to share that message will come alive again, and, the God, and, and our hearts will be surrendered to God, and he'll pour out his spirit to empower us to do it. Amen. Is there anyone else before we go on to our next question? Go ahead, Pastor yeah, do, Chris. Uh, working in a church setting, um, one of the greatest challenges we have is, is sometimes hurt feelings or frustration between different church members. And I read this quote uh, here a little bit ago, and, it, and it was, I thought it was powerful. It said, we must learn to place the best possible construction upon the doubtful conduct of others. If we are ever suspecting evil, we are in danger of creating what we are, or allow ourselves to suspect. We cannot pass along without sometimes having our feelings hurt and our temper tried. But as Christians, we, we must be just as patient, forbearing, humble, and meek as we desire others to be. And so I thought this was eminently practical. Practical When uh, someone is doing something I consider to be doubtful, uh, I'm told to place the best possible construction on that. And one of my daughters helped me out one time. Uh, I get really frustrated when people get on my bumper. It just really irritates me. And uh, so this happened one time as we were driving. This person was right on my bumper. And then they whipped around me. And I was just rather irritated. And she says, Dad, get, you know, possibly his wife is in the hospital and she's giving birth, and he's rushing to get there. And I thought, huh, well, that's okay. Yeah, go ahead, you know. It, it changed my frame of reference. If I thought, oh, he's not just being a jerk, like, no, there's a reason why he's on my bond. Oh, then it changed my perspective. And so if we can try to somehow put the best possible construction on why others are doing what they're doing, maybe it could help relieve some of our own frustration. Yeah, I think definitely um, looking, just to comment on that, I think when we assume the best of, of other people, I think it, it, it helps us to, to understand and place ourselves in their, their feet as well, too, definitely. Maybe one last comment before we go. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. I actually just really want to affirm everything that has been said, and agree especially with Dr. Sloan, that um, we, can, we can look back 
um, to the group that has done it. We can look back to a time in history when it has been done. We can look at the early church. Ask yourself, what were they doing? Uh, we do the same thing. Um, look at the early Advent movement when it first started. Ask ourselves, what were they doing? Uh, and we do the same. Amen. All right, next question. I've kind of uh, uh, warmed up everyone to this. So how do you believe the Adventist church should best deal uh, with the LGBTQ community should we allow them to continue their path or try to steer them in a better direction? Go ahead, yes. I just want to make just a quick first comment. Um, this is such a sensitive subject, obviously, just in the world that we live in. Um, it's, it's unpopular to, to say anything otherwise than what's true for you is good for you. Um, the Bible is clear on it, and so I actually just want to just make the first simple observation from the Bible that um, it's just like any other sin. If, if the Bible says it's a sin, you know, so no matter what the sin is, um, do we go to that person and, you know, the way that we go about it should be exactly the same uh, as anything else. Mm -hmm. And so with anything else, we're trying to point them to Jesus. Um, God's the one who changes the heart. We don't change people's hearts. And so, um, yeah. Thank you for starting that, yeah. I think having a loving perspective towards anyone is what God would have us do. God is love, and he would have us have a loving perspective. Um, I, I worked at a school uh, once upon a time, and at this school there was uh, an individual that was struggling with um, uh, homosexual tendencies. And uh, the, uh, as we were talking with him, I arranged counseling to help with this issue. And uh, I was actually confronted by the parent saying, no, this is not wrong. This is not a wrong tendency. They don't need to change. This is fine. This is just the way God made them. And the, I think some of the challenge that we have with some of this community isn't that we don't love and show compassion. It's that we draw a line and say this isn't right behavior. Uh, that God has a, a, a plan and a, and a design he has for our life, and we need to bring ourselves in harmony with that. That's where the greatest peace, joy, and love will be is when we're in alignment with God's will in our life. So I see the greatest tension in this particular uh, genre has to do with the fact that we say there is a moral standard of right and wrong and that, that we can change. God can give us power to change and become what he would have us to be. And uh, um, I don't think we should change on that standard, but it certainly should always be done with uh, compassion, love, and, uh, and interest. I find this a very, very difficult topic. Because we live in a sinful world and we are born into sin. And there is the, how do you say, the continuation of greater sin based on your parents' sin and my parents' sin. And the young people today have a much harder time than their grandparents did with confronting sin. We see this in the, in the Bible, and I share this in different ways with different groups, but Abraham sinned by lying about his wife not being his wife. And you see later, his son does the exact same thing to the same kingdom. That's the concept that I'm trying to, to talk about here. We know that the brain changes based on how it's treated, and that that is also both a cultivated as well as an inherited tendency. So a person can have an inherited tendency toward alcoholism. The first drink that they drink makes them an alcoholic, whereas someone else that's not true for. So this is a very sensitive situation because I truly believe that there are people who are born with 
a mental tendency towards certain, certain things. And they can't just all of a sudden say, okay, it, I can't feel this way or, or think this way instantaneously. It is something that is there, and they have to fight against it from the moment they realize that it's there, and it doesn't just go away. And to try and be sensitive and, and helpful, encouraging, and positive, um, I think is extremely necessary on the part of everybody. And, and it's not just this particular group. Uh, I don't know if we're ever going to get to the, the question about um, pornography. But it's, to me, again, it's, it's this thing that in our brain, we can keep going down the same path in our thought process, and it just strengthens that. Or we can change that thought pattern. Um, I also realize that there are people who want to believe or behave a certain way, and no matter what you say or do, it will never change them. Christ did not save every single person when he was on planet Earth, although that was his desire. Were you going to share Pastor Peppers? Yeah, yeah, definitely. <clears throat> I appreciate what everybody has said. I want to read a text. I read this the other night, but verse, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the first part is very strong, so just bear with me. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators or idolaters or adulterers or homosexuals or sodomites or thieves or covetous or drunkards or revilers or extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. A lot of people use this text to say, oh, you see, gay people will not be saved. You have to turn away from it. But what they also don't point out is that he puts that in a list of lots of other sins that are very common to quote-unquote straight people such as adultery, drunkenness, etc. And so, yes, I don't understand why, but the Christian world tends to make homosexuality a more grievous sin than other sins. Hmm. And some people might think that, and that's okay, but I don't think so. Because he doesn't say all of these things, and by the way, the worst of these is homosexuality. He doesn't say that. So we have to be careful as was stated, not to make it seem like that sin is worse than another. But at the same time, we have to make sure that we don't make it less than any others. Mm -hmm. Are you with me? We, we, we have come to the place where because society is so, culture is so penetrated the church that we want to say, oh, well, we just don't say anything to people and we don't, you know, we just love them and accept them. I think we should love them and accept them. I would have lunch with a gay person. I would allow a gay person to stay in my house. I don't have any problems with that. In fact, my mother's brother was a homosexual and he died of AIDS in the 1980s. So I know something about it. And so, but the reality is that it is a struggle. But so is alcoholism. So is pornography. So is lust. And it's, it's not any worse, but it's not any different than any other tendency. We are born with these tendencies because we're born into a sinful world. But through the grace of God, I believe that anything can be conquered. So it doesn't matter how you were born. You can be born again. Amen. 
I mean, I don't have any doubts. That, I mean, it once was doubted. Well, I, people say, well, I was born this way, and, 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 and that was once doubted. I don't doubt that people are born with a natural tendency to lean towards that lifestyle. I don't doubt that at all. I believe that our genetics and our DNA has, have gotten so messed up through the ages and through generations of sin that people, certain people have that tendency, just like other people have tendencies to alcoholism or drug addiction or whatever. But God can give, uh, God can renew the mind, and he can certainly renew the heart. And I know people personally who have truly had victory over that thing. And so we need to have love, and we need to have compassion. We also need to encourage people towards the right thing. I want to read this one text, and then I'll finish here. It's the James chapter 5, verse 19. It says, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. And so we need to understand that um, it, it's not God's ideal for us. Um, you know, when you think about the LGBT, when you think about bisexual, I mean, God's plan is for one person to marry one person for life, correct? So if, let's just, I mean, don't misunderstand me here, but let's just suppose homosexuality is okay. What about bisexual? You can't have one partner in life and be bisexual. You understand what I'm saying? So there's something uh, totally not in God's order of things with that. Um, and so I could say more, but I'm talking too long. Yeah. Definitely. I, I just want to say again, this this is such a critical um, hmm, point, especially for those people who are struggling with this. Because as a church, I believe that they feel as though they're lost, that there is no hope for them. So it's extremely important for us to realize that we must be sensitive and caring toward them. And Christ is truly our example in this. He was accused of being the friend of who? Sinners. Sinners. Of who we all are. Pride is the worst sin. Okay? Pride is the worst sin. So we need to be very sensitive to them and to help them. And I do not remember off the top of my head, but if you want to talk to me later about it, I have actually listened to an audio of a, a person who was in this lifestyle, was a, a university professor, and they lived through this whole lifestyle, and they actually marched, and they were against Christians and everything like that, and how God got a hold of them and changed them. It is the most powerful testimony that I've ever heard in regard to this, and they never were looking for God. And so it is true. God, God is in the business of trying to make whole people, and all of us need that. If, if, we can, if we can live a godly, kind, loving Christian life for them and, uh, and, and just, and what I'm saying is I'm not saying you shouldn't ever address the, address the issue, but it needs to be done very tactfully, very sweetly, very kindly. But if we keep pointing them to Christ, Christ is going to bring that reality to their life. And there's a beautiful ministry coming out ministries, good friends of mine, all of them, and um, I'm, I'm Maybe many of you have heard of it, but if you haven't, Coming Out Ministries, you can Google it. Uh, it's one of the most profound and effective ministries that I've seen. 
dealing with the issue in the correct way. And we have, that's, that's the, the issue is not the issue. The issue is how we handle the issue, does that make sense? I mean, the issue is the issue, but you understand, the, one of the bigger problems I see is how we've handled the issue, and we've handled it many times unfairly and unkindly, um, but when it's been dealt with kindly and people have had the right examples and the right people and they've been pointed in the right direction, they get pointed to Christ and Christ frees them. He, he, he does a beautiful thing in their heart and their lives. Man, just as a closing, um, uh, one friend uh, shared with me uh, this story that oftentimes we, uh, there was a smoker that came to a church and there were, you know, the ashtrays they have, um, they were like, oh, before you come into church, you have to leave your cigarette outside. And that's oftentimes how we, just as has been shared, we, we look at all the sins and we, we tell people to leave them outside before we come to church. Uh, but really, the, the church is not a rest home for saints, it's a hospital for sinners. Um, and I think that's how, uh, a common phrase, how many of you heard, like, love the uh, sinner and not the sin? Yeah? And I think that's often how we should, we should treat other people as well. Not only in just this case, I think, um, in all types of sin. You know, God, for God, uh, lying and cheating and stealing, all of those are equivalent to, to even this. And so uh, who are we to say that that sin is greater or less? You know, it's our responsibility just has been shared to share the love of Christ uh, with that individual. So you're saying instead of leaving your sins outside of the door, you should bring them in and lay them at the altar. Ooh, right? let's go. Is that, is that a better idea? Yeah. That is, that's, that is. All right. Um, I think our last question, if uh, time allows us, is this. How can we have assurance of salvation if it is a sim- as simple as accepting Jesus as a Savior? Why did Jesus not, excuse me, why did Jesus, this, this question has some grammatical errors, I think. Why did Jesus say, not say to everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will We'll end, okay, I'm going to do my best. Lord, Lord, will enter. How do we know? How do we know and can be sure Jesus will not say, I never knew you? Does that make sense to everyone? Maybe I need to rephrase it. Got it? Okay. Our hope and trust is in Jesus and not in ourselves. And so um, I could call myself a recovering thief because in my early life, what I did a lot of was steal, and I'm a really good thief. I know how to walk out of a store with what I want. And when I understood the thief on the cross asking Jesus, you know, to remember me when you come into your kingdom, Jesus said to him, verily, today, right now, I'm telling you, you're in. And so I think we, we focus too much on our, ourselves and our own weakness, and we need to um, accept the reality that Jesus died for us exactly as we are. He died for us sinners that we are. And his love for us expands as we fall into sin. I am convinced he loves us more then because that's when we need him more. And so the way to not be afraid that we're going to be one of those people that says, I never knew you, is to know Jesus, you know, and, and allow him to give us that assurance. Uh, Martin Luther, I think it was Martin Luther who said, um, no, it wasn't. I'm thinking of another quote, but the quote that, um, 
it's leaving my mind, I'm sorry. Um, I can't remember it, so it's gone now. But just the assurance, give me a minute here. The idea that uh, there's, there's, we've heard before, there's nothing that we can do to make God love us less, nothing we can do to make God love us more. And what we can rest in is the reality that Jesus loves us exactly as we are. And he died for us when we're in sin. And when he, when he says in that beautiful message to the church of Laodicea, where we have, behold, I stand at the cross, I stand at the door, and I knock. And I'm knocking at your heart's door. And if when you open your door, I will come in, and I will sup with you. I will stay with you. And we can have that assurance that no matter what we have done, what we are, Jesus' love is unconditional and eternal and is not going to change. Amen. Just as a really quick thing, just as uh, this is our last question, uh, just to keep it between one to two minutes so that everyone who, who would like to share, just this is our last question. Okay, I'd just like to share that. Salvation is a beautiful process that shows God's love. And salvation is sanctification. And what sanctification means is to be set aside every day. So if we really want to have that, to know that, you know, um, we won't just say a small little prayer and then think that, you know, we ne- God will say that he never knew us. It's also in us that we, God gives us this beautiful opportunity every day that we're able to set ourselves aside for him. And every day we have an opportunity to decide, do I want to do that or do I not? And so this is a question that I pondered for a long time as well. And mainly, like the main point is that we have an opportunity to surrender ourselves, to set ourselves apart for God every single day. And if we choose to, then that's where we can have our salvation. Amen. Matthew, go ahead. There's at least two ways to view salvation, uh, as a business transaction or, you know, as a relationship, which I believe the Bible supports. Um, You know, I do this, God gives me this, that I'm going to make it. And there's this fear that, oh man, is he going to come up with his end of the deal? Is that what's going to happen? Is, there's this doubt actually, um, this is why I think it's relational, there's a doubt as to his character, if he's really going to come mm-hmm. through with it. Um, to know if we have that assurance, um, the context of Matthew chapter 7, what, what Jesus is saying is, um, I, never, I never knew you, like in a relational sense, that, that word. That being said, um, I believe we can actually look at it like any other relationship, you know? How, how do you make your relationships with your friends, with your family, with a significant other? Um, are you learning more about them every day? Um, do you care about them? Do you believe that that person really cares about you? Um, if you're growing in these things, then like, I, I think if you look at that just on the table, you can know if you're in a relationship with Jesus or not. And friends, what it says in God's word is that if you're in a relationship with Jesus, that, that he will take you in. Um, that, that assurance can be had right now. Man, go ahead, Pastor Chris. So I was out in a canyon in Utah and uh, with my family. We were hiking down through this creek, and uh, someone had thoughtlessly thrown a beer bottle in there, and it broke. And uh, so this jagged edge was under the water. None of us could see. And uh, as my, uh, one of my daughters was walk- walking along, she stepped on that and sliced her foot badly. And uh, uh, so she felt this pain. She cried out. And, and so we see her foot is just bleeding. Blood is everywhere. Uh, as a father... I'm going to do whatever I can to help her. So uh, we bandaged her foot. I put her on my back. We carried her out. We took her to the doctor. They, uh, they helped stitch up her foot. Um, she didn't need to worry about, oh, is someone going to take care of me? No, her dad was with her, and we were going to get her out to safety. 
And so this, this idea of, am I saved, am I not saved? Uh, God is our Father, and we're in this world of sin, and we have been damaged by it. God is going to do everything he can to get us out and get us safe. If our confidence is not in ourself, but it's in mm. his ability, we need not fear. Amen. Yeah. Is there anyone? Yeah, I'd ahead. like to add a verse that's yeah. been meaningful to me, and that is uh, Romans 12. Do not be conformed any longer to this world, to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will know God's will, his perfect and precious will. And so I think when we make that choice that we're going to uh, focus on him, you know, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds is how we think, that um, we won't be afraid that God is going to say to us, I don't know you. Amen. Right. Why don't we go ahead and, and finish, and Pastor Pepper is going to share one last thing. Yeah, I think, I think today, and it's way too big to try to break it all down here right now in one minute, but um, I think a lot of people are very confused about salvation, um, as basic and fundamental as it is, and the elements of justification, sanctification, and glorification. And there's a lot of books being printed now, even in scholarly circles, that really do a lot of damage to uh, the concept of salvation that's really trying to take us backwards to a Reformation-style gospel, when that is what was a beautiful thing when it was first discovered. But since that time, God has given the Adventist people a deeper understanding of salvation. Um, And when you take a look at justification, you find text after text um, that says that justification is not just simply forgiveness of sin, but it is actually a transformation that takes place of the heart. And that when that transformation takes place, we will live a different life. Now, sanctification is the process of continuing to grow us more closely to Christ. That doesn't mean from the moment of justification that I'm, I'm, my actions after that will be totally perfect. But some people say that the, when, when God forgives me and declares me just because of the righteousness of Christ, that is only a declar, uh, declara, uh, declarative statement. It's not an actual thing that happens in my life. So the, and this is a bit of theology, but the question is, when God justifies me, when I first come to him to surrender my life to him, is that just a statement that God makes about me that isn't really true? Or am I actually made righteous by that justification process, that, 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 that time that he's uh, justifying me? And so I believe the Bible is very clear that when we come to Christ for forgiveness and we are truly surrendering the will completely to God, that there's actually a transformation that takes place in the heart. And I'm not just simply declared righteous, but I'm actually made righteous by the righteousness of Christ. And, I, and I'm not just, because listen, if God just declared me righteous, but I wasn't really righteous, that would mean God was telling a lie. And how much assurance do I have in the idea that God just says I'm something that I'm really not? No, but he makes me righteous, not because of my efforts, not because of my own works, but because of the works of Christ. And then that transforms my heart. And as Christ begins to live in within me, then the works that I do will be wrought in the power of God 
and those will be righteous works. And I won't be doing works to earn my salvation. I'll be doing works because of my salvation. Does that make sense? And so that sanctification process is a deepening of that justification until day by day as I put my faith in Jesus, I can have eventually but the, the faith of Jesus. Does that make sense? And, um, and so the faith that I have will actually be the faith of Christ. And so God is not just in the business of forgiving us, but he's in the business of restoring us back into his image. And that's what he actually wants. That's the fullness of the gospel. You know, the Reformation gospel was just simply God forgives you freely, which he does. But that's not the full gospel. The full gospel is not that, just, that God forgives me, but he transforms me and he recreates his image in me. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing that God cannot just create the world, but he can recreate my heart. That's, the, that's what I'm going to preach on this morning. And, all right, and with that, why don't we go ahead and bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you uh, on the Sabbath morning that we were able to uh, dive into some questions that um, at some point I'm sure all of us have asked. Um, or will ask in the future, and I pray that this will uh, not only suffice, but will give a deeper understanding of your character of a God of love, and help us as we as we study your word, help us to seek it and to earnestly search after your will in our lives, and we pray that we will be that light that will be able to help people not only to see uh, Jesus and him crucified, but we'll be able to I'll see you face to face as well. We pray for the rest of the service today and may we leave not only blessed but be a blessing to others. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.